I appreciate the Lord of the Rings. I'm not going to name my next child Frodo, but I appreciate it. So to summarize the Lord of the Rings in a tweet, it's this. Frodo selflessly takes the ring with his best friend Sam on a quest to destroy this ring. And the ring is this thing that corrupts you fully and completely. And so in the two towers, Sam and Frodo are standing there. And Sam says this to Frodo. I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. You know, as I look at this third episode, I'm challenged by how easy it is for me to fast forward past the main character of this parable that we've been talking about these last few weeks. This is less about the two sons, and it's much more about the father. See, what we see in this text is that the God of heaven is nothing like anything we've ever known or experienced. Today, we're going to consider the prodigal father. My name is Ernie. And my name is Stephen, and this is Devout, an invitation to pause and set our minds on things above. And today we're continuing our discussion of Luke 15, looking at the prodigal son, but focusing in on the hero, the main character, the father. And as you said, understanding how different he is from an earthly father. So let's examine just a few attributes of the father, kind of unpacking a few parts of the story. When the prodigal son is returning, it tells us that the father was the one looking out for his son. Not a servant, not a watchman. He didn't delegate that to a low-ranking worker and signals his desire, his interest in his son. He didn't wait for his son to make it all the way home. He ran to him. And I've heard that at the time that was out of the norm for someone of his age in that culture, maybe putting some of his dignity on the line. But it also shows us how quick God is to show mercy to us. The scripture tells us he was filled with compassion. And if I put myself in those shoes, I'm not sure that's what I would have been filled with. I might have been filled with anger or maybe, hey, I told you so. I knew you were going to go off and squander that and come back crawling to my house. Interestingly, he wasn't even filled with relief, but actually compassion. And then later in the passage, when the older son gets angry and attacks his father, here again, the father doesn't respond with anger. The father begins his response to his angry older son by addressing him as his son, reminding him of his identity instead of lashing back or putting him in his place. Even if he was upset with his son, and even if he wanted to teach him a lesson about his self-righteousness, he doesn't go there. He reminds him that everything I have is yours. Another aspect of the father that stands out is how extravagant he is. I love that word. When I think about extravagant, you know, I think about maybe a party that it's so lavish that I'm almost embarrassed to be there or a mansion that I just don't belong in and I feel uncomfortable. And that's almost the vibe that I get here that the father was just pulling out all the stops to throw this extravagant party. And I think that's what we need to remember that that's how God views us. The picture of the father here is so different from maybe that of a judge as another example. You, you know, you could imagine a forgiving judge talking to his prodigal son who returned saying, well, son, I will choose to forgive you because I think you learned your lesson and you seem truly sorry. So yes, I will allow you to work in my house as a servant. But in contrast with that rational judge who does show forgiveness, this father is compassionate, is extravagant, is quick to show mercy, 
runs to restore his relationship with us. The son just wanted to be saved from his hunger and just wanted to be treated like a servant. But the father didn't just save him from his hunger. He saved him into abundant grace and into a restored relationship of father and son. If we think of salvation simply as fire insurance, we miss the lavish party and the deep satisfaction it can bring. I love the message that Jesus presents to us. It's this wild, reckless, prodigal grace from a loving father who would do whatever he must do to bring his children home. The father's desire is to bring his children home. He loves them both. He runs to meet them both. Yes, both were wrong, and yes, both were loved. See, this story communicates the story of God's reckless pursuit. And catch this. This reckless pursuit is of you and is of me. Let me ask a question. How would you respond in answering this question? Do you honestly believe that God likes you? Not just loves you because theologically God has to love you. If you could answer this with a gut-level honesty, oh yes, my father, my Abba, is very fond of me. And you would experience the tenderness of the father that we've seen through Jesus. See, when we see the beauty of what he has done for us, it attracts our hearts to him. See, John 3.16 is so distant because of the voice of shame that's so loud in our minds. Yes, he loves the world, but how could he love me? See, the father went infinitely further than this parable. It's not just that he ran after me. No, he loved me to the point of dying, a wrath-absorbing, torturous death in my place on my behalf. And that's the power of this message. It's the power of this message that answers the longing of our hearts. It's what Jesus wants to depict in this story to us, that there is a Father in heaven who's willing to chase after our lostness to bring us to himself. When I think about God's willingness to chase us and his, his desire that's born out of love, there's several passages that come to mind. I think about Jesus telling his disciples, no, let the little children come to me. He doesn't view us as a nuisance, nor even as an obligation, but someone to desire. In Zephaniah, the verse says, he will rejoice over you with gladness. In John 17, Jesus, when he's praying, he says, Father, I desire that they would be with me where I am. So you see this desire for fellowship, for intimacy. It's that notion that he doesn't just love us, but he really does like us and wants to spend time with us, wants us to be with him, to be where he is. We think about Romans where Paul writes that you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, the spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And you think about Abba and that intimate picture of daddy and just how different that is from, you know, that maybe of a, of a judge. You think about a judge who may be very rational and a judge who justifies and has power to render you not guilty. You could imagine a forgiving judge maybe talking to his prodigal son who returned and calculating in a very rational way and saying, well, son, I will choose to forgive you because I think you learned your lessons and you seem truly sorry. So yes, I will allow you to work in my house as a servant. And we think about how different that 
judge who justifies is from this Abba, this daddy who has this desire to be with us. It's not a clinical cerebral love, but a desire that runs deeper than we could ever imagine. You know, there's a big difference between experiencing the rich flavor of honey and hearing somebody talk about it on a PowerPoint. You know, honey is so sweet and so delicious, but just talking about it, there's nothing really wonderful about it. And in the same way, you know, we can talk all day about how there is a Father in heaven who loves us, who has given us extravagant love and mercy. And it's very different to actually experience that in our hearts. I think the challenge for us is to really slow down and consider, are there tendencies in my heart that are moving me away from the Father and maybe towards religious activity or towards irreligious activity? And the invitation for us today is to slow down and to receive who we are in Christ and that the Father has loved us extravagantly, that we are His and He's ours. We'll see you next time.